Well, good morning to you all. For those who uh, maybe weren't here last week, Happy New Year to you. It's already underway. You missed it if you, uh, if you didn't know it. If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to uh, open it up to Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. That'll be our sermon text for this morning. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to use one provided for you there, right there in front of you in the, in the back of the pew, um, there's one, the shorter dark brown hardback book there, and you'll find this passage on page 770 or 810, depending on which printing of that you have, Acts 1, 1 through 11. And we're beginning a sermon series through the book of Acts, and I've titled it Beyond, the series that is, I've titled Beyond, and hence the little video um, clip you saw there, uh, beginning to gaze up over the wall. I don't know if you remember that experience when you were a child walking by a wall, and uh, there was something about it that inherently you just wanted to climb up on there and just peek up and see what was up beyond it. Now, maybe I'm just giving personal testimony here. You know, some of you may have been tall enough to see over the wall to start with, <laughs> but that usually wasn't my experience, so I found myself pulling up on the wall to see what was over on the other side to look beyond. But we're interested in our study in the book of Acts to observe what it looks like for the church to live beyond Sunday, beyond the walls, and beyond the borders. And so we'll just go through the book together. I'll preach the messages that are there in the text, but we'll be particularly interested in noticing the church beyond. And you know, I'll connect this with um, some of what we've studied leading up to this. You'll recall back in the fall, if you were here, I began with a series on unity called One, and we considered what's required of us to be one people with one identity, one purpose, and one direction. And in, in that series, as well as during Advent, we were reminded that Jesus came to earth on a mission trip. You know, he didn't just, he didn't commute in from heaven to earth to do uh, what it was that he came to do. He actually left the glories of heaven, condescended to become man, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, it says. And John 1 describes that same reality by saying that the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, or, or literally tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent here. And so what he did for us, he commands us to do for others on his behalf. That is to go and be among people that he desires to bring to himself. And so when we put those together, we find our one direction as a church that goes and lives on mission like Jesus in the name of Jesus. And so we'll be guided and motivated in that direction by the book of Acts. And these first 11 verses will put this, whole, this entire study in kind of perspective. Um, and uh, so let's look there now in Acts 1 through 11. And, or sorry, we'll do, just look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And um, I'll ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, 
I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we thank you as always for the privilege of gathering together as your people and entering your presence. And Lord, for the privilege of opening your word to hear you speak to us. We believe that the Bible is your word, that it is not only true, but that it is living, that it has the capacity to inform and to enlighten our understanding, but also to transform and change. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would do all of that to us and in us. You know all of the needs represented in this congregation here today. There's no way that anyone in a natural sense could speak to all of them, but you in a supernatural sense by your spirit can do that, and that's what we ask you to do. So, Lord, speak your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory and to our good. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, what I want to do today as we tee up this series, and we'll be here for a little while, so just not today, uh, but uh, in the book of Acts, so just, so just make yourself comfortable in the book of Acts. But uh, what I want to do as we, as we tee up this series is just to provide a little bit of background on it. And again, um, to let this first 11 verses sort of set the stage for us for what is to come. And so I'll begin by pointing out um, that the book of Acts is written by Luke. And one of the ways we know this is because it's addressed to Theophilus in the same way that Luke's gospel was. If you were here for our Advent series, you remember we made that observation from Luke uh, 1, verses 1 through 4. It also is addressed to Theophilus. And uh, the reason that that is helpful to know um, is because the, the first several verses of Acts 
um, actually overlap with the conclusion of Luke's gospel. If you were to read Luke chapter 24, you see he concludes by talking about the resurrection and the ascension, and he opens up here in Acts by talking about the same thing. So Luke 24 actually kind of illuminates uh, what we read in the opening verses of Acts. And he tells us, of course, right there in verse 1, that it is uh, essentially where he implies this is book 2, because he says in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so he's, he's continuing what he started there. And Acts is unique among New Testament books. You know, it's the only book that gives us a historical narrative of the happenings of the early church and, and bridges the gap, the gap between the Gospels and the Epistles. So the Gospels were set in Israel and, and written about events that occurred during the life of Jesus. The epistles are written mostly to churches well beyond Israel, the Gentile world, and, and address issues that are going on in those churches uh, 20 or 30 years after the death of Jesus. And so it is the book of Acts that actually connects those dots for us, that bridges that gap. It tells us how do we get from Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, in Israel to churches spread throughout the Gentile world, uh, the Greco-Roman world. Acts is the only book that does that for us. And so it answers questions like, what does a Jewish God have to do with Gentiles? How did that message of a Jewish rabbi give rise to all these churches? Is this totally a new religious movement? Is this kind of like a cult that's just sprung up out of somewhere, or is it connected in some way to ancient roots? And how is God at work still bringing to pass his plans for human history? And, and Acts addresses uh, those kinds of questions and more. And so going into this study, we'll expect to read a story about a missional church in a pre-Christian world. Now, that's of, of real keen interest to us and of great value to us because we want to derive some lessons on how to live as a missional church in a post-Christian world. Do you realize, beloved, that we live in a post-Christian world? You know, it was once upon a time, um, you, you could speak about um, issues, values, truth, and that kind of thing publicly with a reasonably safe assumption that masses of people interpreted that through sort of a filter of a Judeo-Christian worldview. That is no longer a safe assumption, has it been for some time. So if you've been tuned in to life out there in the world, you probably already knew that. We live in a post-Christian world, and so to live as a missional church in a post-Christian world, we can learn some valuable lessons from the missional church in, a, in the pre-Christian world as we read about in the book of Acts. And that church was a community, of course. They did assemble together like we've assembled today on a, on a regular basis. But we'll see that that's a comparatively small part of the story in the book of Acts. In Acts, 
we hear relatively little about their gatherings and a lot about their goings. And that's what we want to pay attention to. And so uh, I'm going to just sort of quickly survey the text we just read. In other words, just to say, what's here? And then I want to focus on uh, one verse that is the central point of this verse and actually the central point of the whole book of Acts that, that really kind of summarizes what we expect in the whole book of Acts um, here in just a couple of minutes. But let, let's look at the first. We're just going to kind of scan through these verses here beginning um, up top at verse 1. And we'll notice there, right off he says this, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, doesn't that imply, if I told you in the first book of what Jesus began to do and teach, that now in the second book, I'm going to tell you what Jesus continued to do and teach. He doesn't say that, but that's sort of the implication, which is very interesting um, because, you know, the, the book uh, originally probably almost certainly didn't have a title to it. Um, it, at some point in history, became known as the Acts, and then later was the Acts of the Apostles. But uh, some have said it's the Act of the Risen Lord Jesus, or the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus, or the Acts of the Holy Spirit, some people would say. But we, we read in the book of Acts the things that Jesus continued to do and teach through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's helpful to know we're looking through those lenses as we go in there. And then he, tells, he's, he says again, uh, Jesus had appeared to them through many convincing proofs, spent 40 days with them. So, so, so part of what's important there um, to, Jesus, or to uh, Luke reporting to Theophilus and whoever the other readers are, this is not just like a group of people saw something as somebody and wondered, is that Jesus? You know, is it, am I seeing a ghost? Is that really Jesus? Did I see just what I thought I saw? No, this wasn't just an occurrence. What they're saying here is uh, they spent time with him over a period of 40 days. They hung out. Luke 24 says he ate fish with them, okay? Spent time speaking about the kingdom of God. And then it goes on in verses 4 and 5 and says, while he was staying with them, he told them to wait there, not to depart, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which would be the coming of the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then they come back in verse 6 to this question. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, if you've studied the Bible some, at, at first glance, this question may strike you as one more uh, utterance of people who just don't get it. Because they're asking, I mean, in other words, you wonder, did, did, are they still expecting a political kingdom here? Are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? But, but I would say on closer reading, I don't think that's what's going on here uh, for a couple of reasons. I'm spending time here because, again, I think it's helpful to, to look toward the rest of the book of Acts with this perspective. Because in verse 3, it told us he spent 40 days speaking to them about the kingdom. If we were to read Luke 24, which again, that maybe that's the, for, for your afternoon reading, that might be something you want to go back and do some further 
study on, but it says, you know, he, he showed them essentially how his death and resurrection fulfilled what the scriptures had prophesied. He's, he's, he's connecting the dots for them, making sense of the Psalms and the prophets and this kind of thing. He spent a lot of time, labored over getting them to understand the kingdom properly. I don't think this question comes out of a misunderstanding. And, and, and perhaps we could say that in part because he doesn't just tell them a flat no. He doesn't say in response, oh, ye of little faith, do you still not get it or whatever. You know, he does, it doesn't say something like that. He says, it's not, time, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father's fixed by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, etc. Uh, so, so you don't need to worry about the times or seasons, but you will receive power. And they asked about the kingdom being restored to Israel. Hey, Israel's part of the answer. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, those are Israel. But also, you're going to be witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then finally, the passage concludes with his ascension there with an angel, with two, two men, it says, um, angels who, uh, like at his resurrection, are standing there saying, why do you stand looking into heaven? He's coming back. So, so they've, they've asked an appropriate question, wanting to understand sort of how does the kingdom fit in all here and what are we supposed to do now? But, but two things he tells them, don't be preoccupied with times and season about how all this is supposed to come uh, to a conclusion and don't spend your time looking up into heaven. He's going to come back. You don't worry about that. You just go be witnesses. And that's the thrust of the passage that I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at in uh, verse 8. Not only the central point of this passage, but the central point of the whole book. Let's look there at verse 8 again. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The book of Acts is actually outlined this way. I mean, if, if Luke submitted this paper to his English teacher, he would get an A plus, I think. Or at least he would get all the points for writing a good introduction and thesis statement. Because he says right there in one verse what the book is about and how the whole book is going to be outlined. In, verses, in chapters 1 through 7, uh, we read about the church in Jerusalem. In chapters 8 through 12, it tells us about the church in Judea and Samaria. In chapters 13 through 18, we read about the church to the ends of the earth. That's exactly the way the book outlines. And they are witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the, of the earth. And the Holy Spirit is present in demonstrable, powerful ways in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and the other uttermost parts of the earth. That's, a, that's exactly how the book outlines. And, and so, with that in view, um, let's consider in a little bit more detail the implications of this verse uh, for them and for us. And first of all, that he says, you will receive power. So the whole, th th this whole message in response to their question um, are, you, are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? It's not for you to know times or seasons, but you will receive power. 
His kingdom is not of this world, but it is present. (laughs) He doesn't rule from a throne in Jerusalem, but he rules from a throne in heaven, not by the power of swords and spears, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you will receive it, he says here. But let's notice a few things about, or a couple of things about that. First of all, that power is to be received, not produced. They're told with respect to the Holy Spirit here in these opening verses, two things. Wait in Jerusalem for it, back in verse 4 and 5. And then you will receive it. Wait and receive are passive words, not active. And, and one of the errors we can fall into is that when we experience or observe um, some powerful move of the Holy Spirit, we can try to sort of rewind the tape and figure out what were we doing right before the Holy Spirit moved there and to go back and try to do those things as if that's how we get the Holy Spirit to move. But he is not a genie in a lamp that we rub whenever we want him to come out and command him to do whatever it is that we want him to do. There, there are things, external kinds of things, that can impact the way our heart is postured to receive the Holy Spirit. Or not, by the way. But his power is still received by us, uh, not produced. But having said that, let's don't miss the fact that he says, you will receive power. You will receive power. Throughout the book of Acts, the presence of the Holy Spirit is made known through powerful demonstrations. I mean, there's there's never a case where somebody has received the Holy Spirit and they're wondering if they received the Holy Spirit. Not in the book of Acts. The only people wondering are people who who haven't yet received him. Uh, There's one... one, uh, explicit mention of that that I can think of in Acts 19. But the presence of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is is known by experience, not by inference. So, you know, when somebody's asking, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Um, Nobody says, well, yeah, that's what the guy told me when I went down front and filled out the response card after I asked Jesus and he told me I received the Holy Spirit. I don't want to minimize, by the way, that reality that every believer in Christ receives the Holy Spirit. I don't want to mislead anybody or confuse them in that way. What I'm saying, though, is the presence of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is demonstrative, demonstrable, observable, discernible. And and no reason uh, why we should expect less in the church today. The Holy Spirit didn't become irrelevant when the Bible was concluded, uh, when the Bible was put together at the end of the first century or or that sort of thing. And let's also note that one of the reasons uh, His presence is relevant not only to the first century church but continues to be for us is that not only would they receive power, but they would also be His witnesses. And, and, and by the way, this is the point. Okay, so throughout the book of Acts, we'll see the Holy Spirit, as I said. He'll show up 
and people know it. There's no mistaking about it, um, but, but that's not the point of Acts. The point is that there'll be witnesses of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The apostles were eyewitnesses to his life and death and resurrection. And uh, the power they would receive would be primarily for the purpose of declaring that to the world. Now, it might be helpful to remember that, um, you know, not so long ago, before this point in the book of Acts, the disciples have not only been gathered in the upper room, but sort of cowering in the upper room. It wasn't too long ago that Peter denied that he had ever been with Jesus. Because they've just watched, Jesus just got crucified for teaching the same stuff he wants us to teach. Hey, let's regroup here, <laughs> huddle up, and let's decide, you know, how, we're, how we want to approach this thing. That, that, this is, that's where they are, a bit coward in fear. And, and again, I think if we're being honest, understandably so, to a certain degree. They'll need power, in other words, in order to uh, be witnesses that he's called them to. But they would proclaim the word in power and the Holy Spirit would confirm the word in power. And, and in Luke's gospel and here in Acts, when someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, it is almost always filled with, or followed by speech of some sort. Now, you check me out on that and go do, you know, the search online on Bible Gateway or somewhere um, and see if that isn't the case. But in Luke and Acts, when he uses that phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, it's almost always followed by speech. And so you, we, we read things like, uh, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Or of Paul in Acts 13, he, uh, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to her or said to him that the filling of the Holy Spirit empowered their proclamation. And that is what a witness does primarily, right? A witness tells something. He's supposed to tell the truth, <laughs> but, uh, but a witness tells. As uh, Daryl Bach, one New Testament scholar, says, a witness is someone who helps establish facts objectively through verifiable observation. Helps establish facts objectively through verifiable observation. This is somebody who observed what it is they're testifying about, we can trust their testimony. So, you know, in my previous work as a school administrator over a period of 13 years, there were several times when, um, where, where the school was contacted about possibly testifying in court, usually family court situations involving, you know, divorce or custody or something like that. And, um, you know, many times they wanted to establish something about the pattern of, uh, you know, one spouse or the other. Um, sometimes there's, you know, often some um, ugliness underlying it and that kind of thing that can just, you know, be part of, of, uh, of those kinds of situations. But they, they would be wanting somebody to testify about, uh, is the child coming to school, coming to school on time? 
Uh, how are they doing academically? Does he appear to be getting enough sleep? You know, doing his homework, these kinds of things. And, um, you know, there, there were several times where uh, somebody contacted me personally as the head of school. And um, essentially, at the end of the, the, the conversation, what was clear is, well, I can testify to our policies uh, and procedures, what is um, expected of teachers or students or parents and this sort of thing. I can, I can look at our records of attendance and testify to their validity and that kind of thing. But as far as the sort of actual on the ground uh, interaction with the student or the parent or that kind of thing, I actually just have not been in the position to observe that. And so the, the conclusion, in other words, at the end of that is, oh, he's just the head of school. He doesn't know anything. Uh, so, so uh, usually they were not interested in having me testify because, because a witness helps establish facts by verifiable observation. Now, I share that illustration to provoke us in these ways. As witnesses to the resurrected living Christ, do we have anything helpful to say to people. As we consider the prospect of going out in our community, of living on mission and being witnesses to the resurrected living Christ, do we have anything helpful to say? You know, how active is our life with Christ? You know, what's He done in your life or the lives of people around you that you can give testimony about. Now, don't misunderstand because the gospel is not your testimony or mine, okay? Uh, our personal testimony doesn't equal the gospel. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in setting people free from the bondage and condemnation of sin through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, and Jesus is alive, and he really does rescue people from all manner of darkness, and what the Bible says about him really is true, and we can proclaim that message knowing that the Word of God has the power to change the lives of people. But do you also have personal testimony of how those things have been true in your own life? Now, I'm just um, tickled I would say pink, but uh, I'm tickled that this morning we had um, an unscheduled, unplanned testimony of God working in the life of one of our own uh, right here in the immediate present situation. I, I already had written these notes, by the way, before she came up here and testified. But do we, you know, do, do we have... Uh, some personal testimony of how what the Bible tells us is true has been made evident in our own lives. When we tell this story that's recorded in the Bible, uh, does it sound authentic because it's coming from somebody who knows it from personal experience? It's true because it really happened. Okay? We know it's true because God said it in the Bible. 
but we know it even more convincingly because God has proven it to us personally. Can you bear witness on a personal level to the resurrection life of Jesus? Well, that's what the church is called to do. And so the challenge to us and the inspiration for us as we study through the book of Acts is to fully embrace our calling to be a missional church. And so as we sort of wrap this up, I want to give us some principles, I suppose, to apply as a church, as we walk through our study of Acts, as we are trying to get our, our eyes and hearts oriented beyond Sunday and beyond the walls and even beyond the borders, uh, let's get our thinking calibrated about what it means to be a missional church. And our denomination, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, has embraced fully this idea of our churches being missional churches and the EPC being a missional denomination. And on their website, they have articulated some of what it means to be a missional church. And so I'm going to read uh, some of those here for you. A missional church grasps that God is a missionary God and that it is not so much that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. It's not so much that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. Again, the church, the, the, the church is, to, is to make Jesus visible to the world. What Jesus began to do and teach in his ministry here on earth, he continues to do and teach through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's at the heart of that statement there. A missional church further believes that the mission of God is rooted unalterably in the Bible, God's infallible word. Therefore, a missional church believes that the essence of God's mission is to extend the reign of God and is summed up in the gospel of Jesus Christ. A missional church is a visible community of authentic disciples of Jesus Christ who gather for celebration, prayer, and teaching and then disperse not just to lunch, but locally and globally as his missionaries to love and serve people. In so doing, a missional church both pursues and welcomes sinners as they are drawn into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. The greater purpose in all of this is that the earth will be filled with the worship of God. Isn't that a glorious thought to meditate on? that the world will be filled with the worship of God. That is the purpose of missions. As John Piper uh, said, missions exist because worship does not. I think I've got that quote right. A missional church believes that it is more than just a collection of individuals, but that it is a community called together by God, both to love him and to serve him. Missional church is concerned with more than maintaining programs for existing members. It is called to mobilize its people both individually and as a community to daily self-sacrifice for the hurting world around them. A missional church is both inwardly strong and outwardly focused. A missional church perceives that the essence of these things is the essence of its existence. Therefore, a missional church will constantly seek to reevaluate itself as to whether or not its emphasis 
organization and activity effectively position the church to partner with God and his mission. So Myrtle Grove has always been passionate about missions. That has been uh, something that defines this church from as long as anybody can remember just about anything about this church. That's been particularly evident in our long-term support of international mission work. And by the grace of God, that support continues and even continues to expand. We've had um, Dan and Beth Sonnenberg right here out of our own flock um, added to the number of those serving with Timothy 2 International, and that's happened um, recently, and, and, um, and they're active on the field right now. But we need similar passion directed toward our own community. Not just giving and sending missionaries inter- internationally, but that passion being directed to our own community, local, sleeves rolled up, hands dirty, missional living, pitching our tent among them like Jesus did. And, and God is already at work in this, um, in this regard too. He's called one of our very own, Kyle Pennington, uh, to serve as an uh, urban missionary full-time with Vigilant Hope. You'll, you'll have an opportunity to hear more about that in, in coming weeks as we have a commissioning service for, uh, for him and for Dan um, coming up. But, uh, you know, God, God called uh, Kyle to go, and he said, yes, Lord. Wait, what? <laughs> Where? <laughs> and uh, he, didn't, he didn't know a whole lot of questions, much less the answers to them. And, um, but, but he said yes, and God is paving the way. And I believe, I believe that is just the first fruits of what he's going to do out of this church locally starting this year. And it's not just going to be with people who, who lay down their nets, so to speak, and take up a full-time vocation to serve locally um, in a missional way. But every one of us, looking beyond, living beyond, pitching our tent um, among people that we're called to love and that we're called to bring to Jesus. We want to be a missional church with a heart that says, we're ready, Lord. Call your next witness. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so unspeakably grateful that we are here today even. Named by the name of Christ. Sharing in common the fellowship of believers. Because you came and found us. Because Jesus didn't consider equality with God a thing to cling to, but made himself nothing and came and took the form of one of us. He pitched his tent among us. He went way beyond rolling his sleeves up and getting his hands dirty. He went all the way to death on a cross so that we might live. So we thank you and praise you for that. And Lord, I pray that the very next thing you would do in our hearts is to to birth and ignite and to fan into flame a love for the people of our city that we can't 
sit still about. A, a love that is burdened by the fact that people are alienated from you. Burdened by the fact that there is no hope outside of Christ. A love that compels us to love others the way we've been loved. Lord, I pray that you would give us that, that you would stir it inside of us and then organize um, our efforts to whatever degree they need to be organized to get us living on mission in the city of Wilmington and in our region. It is our firm belief, Lord, that you have, you're not finished with us. In fact, you are starting something fresh and exciting. We sense it. We're beginning to see it. And Lord, we open our hearts to receive it. We pray you would start with me. Start with me. In Jesus' name, amen.